You're listening to Connecting the Universe from Mike Ricksecker and ConnectedUniversePortal.com. Welcome, everybody, to Connecting the Universe. I'm author and researcher Mike Ricksecker, back with you after a one-week hiatus. To do apologize for a little ancient aliens thing there, and that had to get taken care of. It was really like a quick less than 24 hours in New York City, but we did get some cheesecake, so there's that. <laughs> All right, so I, you know, I decided to make this topic today on the Alaska Triangle. And I know we've covered that a few times in the past, but uh, there are a couple of different things coming up here regarding the Alaska Triangle. One, there is the interview with George Norrie coming up on Gaia TV uh, for Beyond Belief. I do not know the exact date. I was just told in November, which that show comes out on Wednesdays. And so it was not released today. So we got a we got a few more Wednesdays here left in November. So you can tune into Guy TV. And I'm gonna be providing links for all of that as well. Uh, because I, I do have a new partnership with them as a Gaia ambassador, which is kind of cool. And then also, which was supposed to air on the 11th, The Unexplained with William Shatner, which is a uh, an episode on different triangle activity around the world, which we're going to be getting into tonight. So Alaska Triangle, of course, that's how I got uh, roped into that one. But then, you know, Bermuda, Bridgewater, uh, the Dragon Triangle out in Japan, Lake Michigan, all of those, they were covering. So uh, that was supposed to air on the 11th. Looking at their program lineup for November 11th, because it is Veterans Day, uh, it does look more military-centric there on History Channel. So maybe the week after, I don't know. Uh, I, that's what I was told back in, I want to say September or late August, that at that point in time, we were looking at November 11th. But um, but yeah, Sarah Yusuf is asking, watch parties in the future. We did that for Ancient Aliens back in March. So I'm thinking watch party as long as I'm, not on the road. If it airs, if that uh, unexplained episode airs on the 18th, it would be, I actually will be on the road because I'll be headed out to Oklahoma uh, to go visit a couple of my kids. So we wouldn't be able to do it then. But there are other, there will be more. I've, I've done a lot of, all the shows that I've been filming since April, none of them have aired yet. And I have filmed quite a few. So I uh, see uh, Katie McVeigh is also down there. Great to see you uh, with us, Katie. Fantastic. So, okay, let's go ahead and actually get into our topic for this evening, the Alaska Triangle. But just real quick before we do, uh, for those listening to the podcast version later, please join us every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern time for the full Connecting the Universe experience on ConnectedUniversePortal.com. So 30-day free trial if you are not already a part of the Connected Universe. And it gets you a lot of, uh, a lot of material. So, uh, of course, there's the weekly Connecting the Universe interactive class. There's sneak peek and behind-the-scenes videos, monthly Q&A videos. Yes, I need your monthly Q&A questions. Um, since I was on the road and didn't take care of that, we need to do that now. So I'll be, uh, I'll be asking for those questions here for the monthly Q&A. Uh, exclusive articles, insider travel blogs like Ancient Egypt, the American Southwest, Ireland, all of this and more, ConnectedUniversePortal.com. All right, class question for this evening. 
What do you think happens to people, planes, and ships that go missing in the triangle areas of the world? So I had a couple of responses to that. Amy Van Tassel said, maybe gone to different planets in space. That's certainly a possibility if they slip through something like a, uh, a wormhole or a stargate or portal type of activity. Katie McVeigh says, maybe they traveled through a portal to a different dimension or perhaps time slipped their way to another time in our current dimension slash reality. Fascinating to contemplate. And this is actually something that we're not really going to get into it this evening because I've talked about it other, other times that we've discussed the Alaska Triangle. But the missing Douglas Skymaster airplane from 1950 that we've talked about before. One of the theories is that it slipped through some sort of portal into another dimension. And like on the television show, which you know, Travel, Travel Channel was airing it today, that was completely uh, random and ironic. I did not uh, schedule this particular topic for this evening based on Travel Channel airing the Alaska Triangle. They just happened to have done that. So great timing. And they did show the Douglas, uh, the missing Douglas episode today. So with that, one of the ideas is that it disappeared into some sort of portal and they used Bruce Gernon from uh, the Bermuda Triangle to kind of explain how that would work since Gernon has actually survived one of these tunnels. He did have a type of time travel experience where he was thrust forward uh, in time, which is really interesting. But one of the things that I've postulated about this is if there if there is some sort of time slip or portal into another point in time that it's giving an example, going 500 years into the past, and say the Douglas comes out of the portal on that end, what would that airplane look like to the indigenous peoples of the area if all of a sudden they saw this massive, huge airplane in the sky? That may be where some of our Thunderbird legends come from. You know, it would be very loud, very thunderous to them, huge, looks like a bird, uh, at least to their eyes, because they would have no context for an airplane. So it could very well possibly be where some of our Thunderbird legends come from. Again, I'm not really going to get into Douglas this evening. We'll mention it in passing. And uh, Sarah, yes, synchronicity for sure. All right. So what I do want to start with, though, is just kind of covering uh, some generalities before we get into Alaska specifically. So like what's a triangle area of the world? You know, when, when we take a look at these sorts of things uh, like Alaska here. Okay, so basically triangle areas of the world, these are vortices of energy which build up from the Earth's core and cause strange phenomena to happen, such as unusual weather patterns, interdimensional portals, and of course, the most famous is the uh, Bermuda Triangle, where people report equipment failures, compasses running wild, as well as extraterrestrial sightings, paranormal activity. Uh, bizarre disappearances in history happen at these locations. And I just kind of ripped that out of my Alaska Triangle book. And basically, the, the concept is, and we've talked about this before, is that uh, you know the Earth's magnetic core is liquid iron, and it's spinning because the Earth is spinning. And of course, spinning metal creates a, an electromagnetic field. And as that rises through the ground, it basically gives us our you know, magnetic protective shield around the planet. As that magnetism rises through the ground, it interacts with different minerals and metals and water, things like this. And when it starts interacting with some of these different materials, that's where it creates that uh, vortex energy in some of these hot spots of the world that we talk about gives us our telluric currents through the ground. When we talked uh, about the the Earth's energy grid, which we've done on several occasions before, you know that's where this energy is coming from. And I wish I would have explained all that better when I did film for the Unexplained with William Shatner, because that was like the one question that the producer and I kept going back to. Uh, I guess I wasn't explaining it the way they wanted to hear it or something. Uh, but in any case, so when that hits the surface, that's when different strange things can happen, where it may interfere with a, uh, you know, the navigational equipment of an airplane or a ship or something like that. And so we're going to get into some of those different stories this evening 
as far as you know what will happen in some of those particular cases. And we will break down some of the different energies within Alaska. I did real quick want to go through some of these other triangle areas of the world uh, at the Warren's Paracon this past weekend. You know, I spoke on the shadow people, uh, my book, A Walk in the Shadows. And so people were coming by the table mostly for that. There are others that you know, had seen the Alaska Triangle television show, and so they, they came by for that as well. But most people that were there specifically for uh, paranormal, they saw the Alaska Triangle, and they were like, I, I didn't even realize Alaska had a triangle. I know, even though we have a television show with, uh, with a couple of seasons in, and uh, you know, they're watching Travel Channel, they're watching Discovery Plus, I know, but not everybody sees every show. Um, and, and other shows have covered this too. And there's going to be more. <laughs> uh, a lot of people don't realize that it's there. You know, they know Bermuda Triangle. That's the famous one. Dragon Triangle out by Japan is actually older, or at least has been known for longer. Uh, but people were not familiar that there are these other triangle areas of the world. So let's take a look at a couple here really quick. So closest there to the Warrens Paracon was actually Bridgewater Triangle. So I did mention this, and a couple of people actually did recognize, oh, yeah, yeah, Bridgewater. So it's a it's a smaller triangle area, and I wanted to do it this past trip. It was probably going to be next spring uh, to do a little filming out there for a, a documentary that I'm working on. But the central figure of the Bridgewater Triangle is a Hockamock Swamp, and there always seems to be like a central feature to a lot of these uh, locations. It was once known as Devil Swamp to colonial settlers because of all the strange activity that happened out there. Witnesses spotted vicious dogs with red eyes, a pterodactyl-like flying creature, Native American ghosts traversing the waterways, glowing lights throughout the trees. And of course, there's been reports of Bigfoot activity and extraterrestrial sighted as well. So Dragon's Triangle, I mentioned that uh, before. Now, this is a really old triangle. Uh, has legends dating as far back as 1000 BC, in which Chinese fables spoke of dragons living under the water's surface who attacked passing sea vessels. Ships have had a lot of problems in this area. So a really interesting historic account within this triangle is uh, from Kublai Khan, the grandson, the grandson of Genghis Khan. So Kublai Khan was trying to launch invasions to Japan. He was trying to, to take over that, that country. Twice he launched this across the sea. Both times, storms kicked up and destroyed his fleet. Over 40,000 soldiers died uh, there in the Devil's Triangle. And so this has become a very, very notorious area. Um, there are even, like around the time of the, you know, Bermuda Triangle lore in the 40s and 50s, there were a lot of vessels that were going missing. You know, uh, all of a sudden they would just see some remains on the surface, and you know, nobody knew what would happen to the people that would venture off into this area. And so the country of Japan sent a scientific team out to the area, and they didn't come back. There was this wreckage that was found. So they ended up saying this, this area is very dangerous to marine voyages. We recommend you don't go through here. So it's a very, very serious area. Then you have the Lake Michigan Triangle. This one's a little bit uh, closer to me. Uh, but basically, Michigan, Wisconsin, and it's really uh, almost to Indiana there at the bottom. What's interesting about this particular triangle is that there have been a lot of, for one, missing people, um, flight 2501 uh, Northwest in 1950. 1950 was a bad year for airplanes. That went missing. The uh, There were red lights that were seen in the sky within two hours after it completely went missing. That And these red lights have been seen there in the area since as early as 1913. But in 2007, there was a set of standing stones that was found under the water. And it's only about under 40 feet of water, but you know the, the water levels have risen enough now that uh, you know that it, it overtook them. But you know we're talking 
you know, like Stonehenge. It is a mini Stonehenge that is there under the water. And they, they refer to it now as the, the Lake Michigan Stonehenge. That could be, I wouldn't say it's the power source, but I would say that uh, the people in the area who built it knew that there was power there in the ground to harness it. We're talking ancient site of power. And they were trying to harness that with their stone circle. So that's why they built the stone circle there. So there's something there under the water. There is a Nevada Triangle, uh, which actually stretches out into California. Uh, plane, a lot of plane crashes in the areas uh, due to unusual wind conditions and a phenomenon referred to as a mountain wave, which is really like an internal gravity wave within the mountain range that increases with elevation. And so that causes a lot of havoc with airplanes that, uh, that fly through the area. And of course, there is the Bermuda Triangle, the most famous one of all, 500,000 square miles of water. And basically stretches from Bermuda to Miami to San Juan, Puerto Rico. Stores go as far back as Christopher Columbus. So not as far back as the uh, Dragon Triangle out there by Japan, but still pretty far back. Uh, he reported all kinds of erratic compass readings. He reported seeing lights upon the ocean that would uh, raise and lower like little candles is how he described it. And he all also witnessed, well, the entire crew witnessed a uh, great flame of fire that crashed into the sea. And that may have just been a meteor, but still, you know, if you're out there on the sea and you're already witnessing all this other crazy stuff and then boom, you also have a meteor crash into the sea, uh, you're going to get pretty spooked. So, you know, the, the, big, um, the big one for Bermuda, of course, is Flight 19 when that, when that went missing. Uh, and those reports there, and they called it Flight 19 because they're just running training missions, and it was the 19th one of the day. So they head out east. Everything's fine. That, that was the first leg. The second leg was to turn north, and they hadn't gone too far after turning north, and all of a sudden, they start getting the erratic compass readings, and a storm kicks up, and the radio chatter that was coming from them was, was really bizarre because they're reporting uh, land masses under them. Well, the water had turned color uh, from like a white to a green, and then the land masses under them, they likened to the Florida Keys, which is way off course. And they should not, even if they got turned around a little bit, they should be nowhere near the Florida Keys. So it was really bizarre. Um, they made a last ditch effort. They said to try to get, you know, uh, under the storm a little bit and never heard from them again. And then a rescue plane that went to go out to find them also went missing. Still not found to this day. None of it. Really bizarre. So those are uh, some examples of different triangle areas around the world. And yes, we are going to get to tonight's topic, the Alaska Triangle, and exploring that. Let me uh, check some of the uh, comments here real quick, see what you guys have to say and comment on. So uh, Jen LeBay is here. Great to see you. Uh, Sarah Yusuf asked, was the stone circle built by Native Americans or was it indicative of a transplanted group? We don't really know. Um, that's a really good question. You know, who would have been the progenitors of this stone circle? Was it the Native Americans? Was it an older culture? Um, yeah, we don't know who put it together. And because it is underwater, it makes it a lot more difficult to research out. So it's, it's uh, something that in this film project that I'm going to be doing here is really going to be next year. That is something I do want to discover more about. So I think you can kind of get the hint that's going to be about some of these different triangle areas. <laughs> uh, but we don't know at this point. Uh, we would say, I, I guess at this point, natives to the area, but we don't know which natives. Um, and, and it may have been far, far further back into antiquity than more modern Native American tribes that are, th that are there. You know, we look at like this area in Ohio, we have what we call the quote-unquote Hopewell culture. We have no idea who they were, but they were the mound builders down there at the Great Circle Earthworks in Newark. Um, and then you had in Chillicothe, there's some other mounds there that are actually perfectly aligned to the ones in Newark. And you're talking like 60 miles away and they're perfectly aligned. And they're huge. Uh, 
well, we don't know really who built them. We just call them Hopewell after the guy whose last name was Hopewell that discovered these mounds. So uh, there's Alina. Great to see you, Alina. And then um, whoever said hi there, please check your settings and I will put the banner back up so that you can get the settings checked. All right. So let's actually move into the Alaska Triangle now. The Alaska Triangle stretches basically or roughly from Juneau to Anchorage to Yukiavik in the north. Now, I said the Bermuda Triangle, 500,000 square miles, uh, which is a very, very large area. Alaska itself is over 600,000 square miles. So bigger than the Bermuda Triangle. Alaska is actually about two and a half times the size of Texas. Uh, extremely large state. I, don't, I think people don't really realize that. So the area in which the or the Alaska Triangle can fit in is actually larger than the state of California. So a very, very large area. Now, within Alaska, we've been talking about the different energies uh, that basically power these triangle areas. We've been talking about the Earth energy. And this is, you know, one of those grid diagrams. For those that are listening to the podcast version later, if you come out here on Wednesday nights, you'll get the full slideshow presentation. Sometimes we uh, throw out a bunch of videos in there too. Come out here and, and watch us, 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern on Wednesdays, connectinguniverseportal.com. So this is, and there are different variations of these grid maps. Uh, and, and what's funny is that it doesn't seem that there are two of them that are exactly the same. But when we look at Alaska, and this one ha actually happens to have a dot over there by Anchorage, if you look all the way up in the left-hand corner. Uh, what's interesting is back in 1965, the U.S. Department of the Interior did, did a survey, a magnetic survey of Alaska, about 100,000 square miles of it. And what they discovered in this 100,000 square miles, and that, again, that's less than a sixth of the state. They defined five distinct magnetic characters, several of which included negative anomalies. So they're quite aware that there is some interesting, bizarre, and even negative magnetic activity that occurs there in Alaska. And I would even postulate that that's one of the reasons why they built uh harp in that area uh, was because of the electromagnetism of the area, not only in the ground, but also up in the air. And we'll get to the air here in just a moment. One of the other things that Alaska has a lot of, and I was there for some of it, uh, is seismic activity. A lot of earthquakes in Alaska. Uh, I was there for one that was 6.8 in 1993. Uh, the first one that I felt was actually a couple months beforehand, and uh, I, had, I hadn't experienced an earthquake before. And so the floor starts moving a little bit. I grab onto a uh, partition. I was at work, and the guys are kind of laughing at me. They're like, it's, it's, you know, it's nothing you do about it. The earth is moving. Like, oh, my gosh. The second one that I experienced, I mean, it sounded like a cannon went off. Like, boom, you know, I'm on an Air Force base. I'm thinking, are, are we being attacked? But no, it was an earthquake. Second largest one ever recorded in the world, and we have on record it in any case, uh, largest ever in North America, occurred in Anchorage, Alaska in 1964. It's 9.2. Uh, absolutely obliterated the region. So you can see some of these photos here of the destruction uh, there in downtown Anchorage. 131 were killed. Uh, several by tsunamis that this kicked off. So tsunamis reached as far away as Japan and Hawaii, rang the earth like a bell. It was so powerful that more than 1,200 miles away in Seattle, the space needle swayed from the shock. Those that died from the tsunamis, uh, five when a tsunami hit Oregon, and another 12 when one hit Crescent City, California. So, you know, you're talking phenomenal power from the earth. You know, that energy gets released and you have destructive things happen. And we talked before, and I didn't, I didn't find any reports for these 
uh, for that particular earthquake. But we talked before uh, some weeks back about earthquake lights and the energy that is produced to create those earthquake earthquake lights. It's almost like a precursor to kind of warn you. It's more of a rare phenomenon, but it's that buildup of energy. It actually becomes visible in some cases, and then boom, the earthquake hits. So in a lot of people of, um, you know, in past cultures, uh, in, you know, we don't know, okay, is this supernatural activity? Is it, um, is it an earthquake light? Is it, you know, extraterrestrials? You know, we don't know. Uh, but it's a very, very interesting phenomenon that can happen at these times of these earthquakes. Also up there in Alaska, you have volcanoes. Kind of almost goes hand in hand with, uh, you know, the seismic activity with the, with the earthquakes. But um, yes, there are a lot, there are actually a lot of volcanoes up there in Alaska as well. When I first arrived, I, I have some Alaska stories. When I first arrived there uh, at Elmendorf Air Force Base, November 1st, 1992. So it was exactly 30 years yesterday. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. It was exactly 30 years yesterday that I arrived in Alaska. Okay, great, awesome. Um, <laughs> Mount Spur had just erupted um, some weeks beforehand. I think it was, it was like later in the summer, but uh, the fallout of the ash was still coming down from the sky. We actually had to uh, cover up our computers at night so the dust wouldn't get in there. When I bought my first truck up there, I, I was up there a few weeks, bought a truck. Uh, Lifted up the hood and around the interior lip, there are like these piles of ash. It was just it was crazy. Uh, but they had, they had been dealing with with that for for some weeks when I first got up there. I mean, it was it was like mixed in with the snow. When I showed up there, uh, November first, there was already snow on the ground, which I thought was just nuts. But there it was. Uh, this overhead shot here is actually of Mount Cleveland. So shout out to Cleveland, Ohio. Well, not that Cleveland, but um, in any case, what's interesting is uh, the Aleutian Islands there has several volcanoes, Carlisle, Cleveland, Herbert, Kagamil, Tana, Uliag, and they appear to all be part of an ancient caldera hidden by the ocean. They just really discovered this. I mean, they've, they've known about these active volcanoes there. But as far as the ancient caldera, they really just discovered this uh, a couple of years ago, in 2020. So where they thought that these, these were each separate volcanoes, they now believe that they're uh, interconnected vents of a much larger volcano, which slumbers under the water there. Uh, so, you know, we... we Talk about that ancient caldera, the super volcano out in the Midwest, but we have one up there in Alaska as well. So, and then I mentioned earlier the uh, magnetic activity in the air. So solar flare activity, we talk about our auroras, the Northern lights. There's a reason for that. And that's because protons and electrons from the sun uh, are they are constantly hurtling toward the earth in different waves and in uh, different strengths. And when you get a big flare off of the sun and it strikes our ionosphere, that's where you get the different auroras from. Uh, of course, better to see in the wintertime when it's the darkest. You're not going to see them during the summer uh, because Alaska is just light all year during the summer, but it's dark uh, all uh, all season long during the winter. And that's the best time to see them. Uh, more common to get greens and blues. Red is a little bit more rare. Those are pretty wild to see. Uh, but basically, you know, what's going on is, um, you know, you have that solar flare hit the Earth's magnetic shield that we talked about earlier is supposed to be protecting the planet from those solar flares. It's a little bit thinner up there and even down there around the poles. And so you get these massive auroras uh, that you're able to see. For a mass coronal ejection, um, you'd get bigger auroras. You see some of those down here. And those are the ones that can knock out the power grids, you know, because you're talking about electro electromagnetism. So basically, what I'm trying to show here in Alaska is you have this 
extreme cocktail of different energies where you know you have that magnetic energy rising up out of the ground you have the solar flares that are bombarding the planet you have the seismic activity the earthquakes you have the volcanic activity the volcanoes so it's just this wild cocktail of different energies in that area to create all of this really bizarre and interesting and sometimes dangerous phenomenon. So let's get into some of these things that actually happen up there. So I mentioned missing airplanes. This is the, uh, the Douglas Skymaster airplane. We're not going to really dive into that story because I talk about that one all the time. Went missing in 1950. Uh, just outside of Snag as it crossed into Yukon Territory out of Alaska, still within the Triangle area, and still very missing to this day. What is interesting, though, is on either side of that plane going missing, within weeks is, uh, actually within days, I'm sorry, within days is you had UFO sightings. Within weeks, a couple weeks after, you had another plane go down, around the same area, smaller, they found that one right away, but this Douglas Skymaster is still gone, which is one of the reasons why they believe that uh, it disappeared into a portal somewhere. You have the Boggs Baggage Disappearance, 1972. Uh, Hale Boggs was the, uh, the House Majority Leader at the time, and it was election season, like it is now. And it completely went missing. It was a it was a Cessna airplane taking off from Anchorage, headed toward Juneau, and still gone to this day. It was carrying him, Nick Begich, who was a uh, Alaska state state representative. Uh, Don Johns was the pilot, and then you had uh, Russell Brown, the aide. Uh, all four of them still missing to this day. But there's one here that we haven't really talked about so much. Uh, but I do include it in my book, Alaska's Mysterious Triangle, of course. It also took place in 1950, about a month after the Douglas Skymaster went missing. This one took off from Isleson Air Force Base near Fairbanks. The missing Douglas took off from, uh, from Elmendorf, which is near Anchorage. This is a B-36 bomber. It was doing a training run. And uh, basically, the training run was for distance on a, uh, on a nuclear bombing run. And so uh, it was going to be heading all the way down to Carswell Air Force Base in Texas. Its target was San Francisco. And so, you know, I kind of target San Francisco. The crazy thing about this was that it was actually carrying a nuclear warhead. So this is a story of the broken arrow. And here's what happened. So as, as this was, um, it was not too far from Juno as it was coming southward. It was over the Pacific and the plane began to ice up. Three of the engines had to be shut down and then they caught fire. The weight of the bomb, of course, was expediting the plane's descent. So the decision was made to jettison the warhead into the ocean. And this is, uh, you know, basically essential protocol for the captain and his crew in order to keep the weapon out of enemy hands. So if they were to, the plane was to go down somewhere and they survived, then um, if they were in enemy territory, then the enemy could, you know, get a warhead. So they hit the salvo button to drop the bomb out of the plane. Nothing happened. Some sort of weird malfunction. So they reset everything, tried it again. Worked that time. Bomb base door opened. They dropped the Mark IV uh, atomic bomb. They detonated its conventional explosives on the way down. They did not detonate the actual nuclear warhead. Fell into the ocean, still there to this day. The crew had to parachute out. They set the plane on autopilot. Now, here's something that's kind of interesting. They set it on autopilot out toward the Pacific Ocean. 17-member crew jumped out to assume safety, uh, but not all of them would be recovered. Five of the crew members were never found. The other interesting thing is that 
It said that they sent the bomber out over the ocean into the Pacific, except it went the other way, eastward, into Canada. And it wasn't for years and years later that they finally found the wreckage of the plane on the side of a mountain in British Columbia. So a lot of strange things happened with this plane, with the weather conditions, and you see a lot of interesting weather conditions that seem to just crop up uh, in these triangle areas. We mentioned it before with uh, Bermuda there, Flight 19. Um, they had the malfunction of the, of the button to try to drop the thing. You had the autopilot go the exact reverse way. Um, and then you had five of the crew go completely missing. So strange, bizarre activity again there in the Alaska Triangle. So, all right, we can get into more stuff with planes because there's so many planes that have gone missing there over the years. And I, in my book, I include a list of some of the lesser known ones, but I think it's kind of important to remember that um, you know, families have no idea what happened to their loved ones. And that's traumatizing for them. You know, there's never closure. They can assume, you know, that the person died, but they never really know for sure. You know, and it's, it's kind of better to know that they died rather than just being left in limbo for decades. At least that's my opinion. So, you know, those, uh, those families uh, have gone through some just horrific trauma in these cases. So then there is the SS Princess Sophia as we get into some of these ship stories. Um, I don't want to get too deep into this because I've mentioned this one before, but this is another one in which weather played its part, where they were headed south out of uh, Skagway, Skagway to Juneau to uh, Vancouver, and it was the last voyage of the of the season. And for whatever reason, the ship ended up stuck on Vanderbilt Reef. And it was and totally bizarre because the captain knew it was there. Now, a storm did kick up out of nowhere, a blizzard, in which they ended up with zero visibility. Now, he has his navigational equipment, the, his crew, him, the captain, uh, Leonard Locke. But apparently, it malfunctioned or didn't it didn't work the right way or something. We don't really know for sure. But he ended up in the middle of the reef, which he knew was there. The storm also prevented them from getting to the ship. And so everybody, the ship eventually uh, sank into the waters and they all perished except for a dog. There was a dog who uh, was able to, that survived, covered in oil. That's how most people actually died was asphyxiated on the oil that leaked out from the uh, from the boilers, unfortunately. But I've talked about this story before, so I'm not going to get too deep into it in this particular class. There is the Clara Nevada. Now, this one is interesting because there's ghost stories associated with this. There's, uh, there's possible murder mystery, a lot of intrigue, and um, it probably doesn't get talked about often enough because we have not covered it on any of the we have not covered it during the alaska triangle television show and the the filming that i've done for a couple other shows regarding alaska's mysteries and the alaska triangle and all that we have also not talked about this one what's interesting about this is uh this ship on its way back south basically exploded and it was carrying $165,000 in gold. This was back in 1898, which would be $5.4 million worth of gold today. So it's carrying a lot of gold. Um, now, what's interesting is the only body that was ever recovered from this was the purser. The fire chief on board I mean, remember this thing exploded. Um, his name, when they looked into the records, was actually the name, that, but they don't know really, truly, if it's him, was the name of somebody who was on Canada's most wanted list. Could have been the same guy. We don't know for sure. It was 1898. 
again, none of the bodies were recovered and everybody seemed to go missing. Or I said, I'm sorry, all the, none of the bodies except the person. But people who have looked into the mystery later on have found that, like the captain of the ship, the captain usually goes down with the ship, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, he didn't stick around to one, either go down with the ship, or two, if he survived, which he did, to report what happened. They, people looking through the records, found him later on captaining another ship. So, without any explanation as to what in the heck happened with the Clara Nevada. Uh, other people that had been aboard the Clara Nevada, they found working uh, some of the, the mills and mines and things like that of Alaska. Again, never explaining what in the world happened on this ship and what happened to the gold. And of course, the one person the body that they find is the person that would be in control of anything valuable on the ship, who is the purser. So it makes you wonder, okay, when this thing sailed off, was there some sort of conspiracy, you know, to, to blow up the ship and make off with the gold? Again, no gold has ever been found. Maybe some down there in the waters. Now where the ship ended up was basically right off of the shore of point, um, I'm sorry, there's the lighthouse. Eldred Rock Light is what they call it now. And the remains of the Clara Nevada are right off of that little island. They basically built this lighthouse because of this tragedy and other ones in the area. Now, almost 10 years to the day of the anniversary of the Clara Nevada exploding and going down, the tide receded and one of the caretakers of the lighthouse, John Scotty Curry, I guess he went by the name of Scotty, actually saw the remnants of the Clara Nevada there. And the tide came back in and, um, and, haven't seen it since, but it was kind of interesting. It was like really right at the 10-year mark. Now, Scotty and one of the other assistant keepers, John Salander, in March 1910, so this is two years after he saw the Clara Nevada. And you know, there are ghost stories about the Clara Nevada and the crew and you know people seeing apparitions and things like that on the island. He and the assistant keeper, John Salander, and they're both in the photo. Uh, Scotty's the uh, the shorter one there, and I can't remember offhand which one Salander is. He's one of the other two guys uh, with the, uh, you can see the buttons on the coats for the lighthouse keepers. But they set out to Sherman Point Lighthouse to assist in some sort of maintenance, or at least that's what they believe. They assisted out there at Sherman Point. They left to go to uh, nearby Comet, which is a town there, and have never been seen since. They did find their boat the following day, completely empty, um, but the two of them have never been found. So the uh, supervisor of the lighthouse, Nils Adamson, was basically haunted by that ever since. Like he he went out there, he was investigating, he got all kinds of others out there to investigate. Another, nothing was ever found, but he felt he felt it was his responsibility because it happened on his watch. So according to his grandson, he had nightmares for the rest of his life about it. And he would sometimes be found standing in his sleep at the window shouting their names, which I guess is what he was doing there at that lighthouse for a long, long time afterward is he would stand at the windows of the lighthouse and shout their names hoping that they would somehow hear him and they could be rescued but of course they never were so all right we have some comments down in the chat that i have uh apparently missed here um yeah there are a lot of questions here that uh, <laughs> that i missed so I'm gonna I'm gonna guess this Hollow Earth comment was from Victoria. It just says Facebook user there, but I've uh, 
but yeah, I'm going to guess that was Victoria. Uh, was solar flare activity monitored during those events? I'm going to have to ask Sarah which events those were since this was a little while ago with that particular question. Uh, do I have a map of the journey? I mean, yeah, you can you can find maps of the journey uh, out there. It was not very far. <laughs> they did not go far uh, you know, to get to that point. It's kind of the thing. And uh, is the activity residual or intelligence? Seems residual from uh, from all of my research. It seems uh, residual for sure. So, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and put up the uh, the permissions here. The streamyard.com/slash Facebook, so that um, so I'm not seeing it's a Facebook user and I know who is, uh, who's speaking here because <laughs> I can't see it in my comments. All right. So that's ships. A lot of crazy stuff has happened up there with ships. We didn't even talk about the, the big channel ghost ship or the Octavius or anything like that, uh, which are all interesting stories. So let's talk uh, real quick on shadow activity. So my personal story, the Alaskan Command Building, uh, we did witness shadow activity in the basement of this building. And I've talked about that before on this, so I won't get too deep into this one because there's some other stories we can talk about in regards to it. Um, but the what I do want to mention about this with the shadows that we saw in that basement, which you know, the ongoing story at the time was that the building was once a hospital and you know, where we were... Uh, set up at was in the former morgue, which actually turned out to not be true. So then it makes you wonder, okay, then what are all these shadows that we're seeing down there? Why why would we have this kind of activity down there? And so my hypothesis, which I'll never be able to prove out because we can't get into the building, of course, it's, you know, active military, um, is that it's some sort of time slip going on that we're either seeing, uh, we're seeing personnel from the past or the future, and if close enough, even possibly ourselves down there. And so I spell a lot of this out in my book, uh, A Walk in the Shadows. So I do want to uh, move from there and talking about that to the Anchorage Hotel and then the Red Onion Saloon. So keep that in mind. Shadows as time slips at the Anchorage Hotel, downtown Anchorage, Alaska, uh, which is one of the oldest buildings down there because of that 1964 earthquake damaged so many buildings. This is actually one of the oldest buildings down there now. Uh, there have been reports of a shadowy silhouette of a woman from a bygone era who appears throughout the building. So what's interesting is that while it shows up more shadowy in nature, people can tell that it's a woman. So it's not a totally straight shadow figure. It almost reminds me of the stories of the little girl from Mineral Springs Hotel. We saw her morph out of the, out of the shadow smoke. But in many cases, this is not fully formed. So it's, it's interesting. Again, we're getting those stories of apparitions out of shadows. So adhering to the idea that some of these shadows that we're witnessing are actually human spirits. Are we having an, an intelligent interaction with that or is it something that's residual? And I think some of these things that we're calling residual may in some cases be some sort of time slip because we, we do in a lot of these residual cases, you know, see something play out from the past. So are we just... Are we watching that play out as a time slip or is it recorded as something like stone tape theory? And that would be where we have to get into the investigative side of it. So Sarah's asking, did the shadow people carry a militaristic gate? I mean, it's so long ago, Sarah, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you, you know, when, when we were seeing those shadows, it's like, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. Um, people walk the way they walk. Your militaristic gait is when you're marching. Um, 
you know, it, it, we walked like we normally walked around there. there. There wasn't like a specific way that we had to or anything like that. And once you're at your duty station, you don't do a lot of marching. I mean, maybe, maybe like the army infantry has to, or the Marines or something like that. Um, for ceremonial purposes, you'll kind of have to like dust off and be like, oh, geez, I need to remember how to do that. Um, but when you're working, you're working. So um, we're talking about like shadows that would like slip around a corner or down the hall um, or like peer around the corner or something like that. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of times it would go off into this back area there um, where a lot of the extra cubicle uh, parts were stored. What was interesting is there's a very large, almost vault-like door that was back there, which we couldn't get to unless you climbed over everything, but it was kind of cool to see it. Not really sure what that was. So, all right. So it was a little segue. Uh, want to stop off here at the the red onion saloon because this also had interesting activity now a lot of apparitions have been seen here it has stories of um so basically this was an old saloon and brothel people don't really realize but in alaska during the late 1890s uh during the klondike gold rush this really became like the wild west of the north so you would take a ship up to Alaska, uh, stop off at one of the ports. This is basically like the thin panhandle part of Alaska. You'd get off one of the ports there and then trek into Canada from there into the Klondike area uh, and, and go mine for gold. So these, be, these became like your old west mining towns. Uh, this is like a central location where people were, you know, debarking or, you know, maybe they're getting back on. So you had a lot of saloons and uh and things like this there well what ended up happening you have a lot of these stories it's actually quite common in a lot of these it's almost the same ghost story where um you know a, a gentleman and his wife or his girlfriend would you know come up there to uh you know find their fortune the male would go off into the klondike for some time a couple of months or whatever to go ahead and mine for gold and then come back. In the meantime, the woman was staying at the inn. And there were, in many of these cases, times where the women would want would run out of money waiting for their husband or boyfriend to come back and would take up prostitution. Boyfriend or husband would come back, find out what their uh, betrothed has been doing, and then murder them. So there's probably at least a half dozen stories like that uh, that I'm aware of up in Alaska in which they became a ghost. There's probably, there could even be more of those type of stories, but ones in which they became a ghost, uh, yeah. And one of those is there at the Red Onion Saloon. So yeah, former working girl, footsteps are commonly heard throughout the second floor, full body apparition has been seen, uh, this sort of thing. But there's also another entity witness at this saloon, which is more dark and oppressive in nature and is seen as dark and shadowy. And it seems like a playback of events when everybody, whenever somebody sees this. And basically um, what ends up appearing are these uh, full apparitions appear in the bar with this large boorish man who's the one that's darker in nature. So he doesn't apparently come off as a full apparition. He comes off as more of a shadow. And he's manhandling several of the working women. And suddenly, one of the women who's tired of his harsh treatment stabs him with a knife. So it's believed that this man was a bouncer at the saloon and is this spirit that uh, appears as dark oppressive entity, not only just in that scenario, but also in other locations around the saloon. So, you know, in some parts, it makes me wonder, okay, are they attributing the whole, you know, dark is evil sort of thing? Um, when we talk about like shadow entities, that kind of thing. So it becomes this nasty bouncer. What's interesting to me though, is the, um, is the whole playback part of it. Um, 
know, is it, okay, so if this was something that was intelligent and you could interact with it, um, would it then be, and, and they're acting out like this is going on, okay? Would it then be some sort of time slip? Like you're able to see it, it's going on, you're able to interact with it. That to me would almost be some sort of time slip. But then you have, uh, the other part of it is just a playback. Uh, and you're just watching the events unfold like some sort of movie or something. And that would be your stone tape theory that some sort of energy has been embedded into the area. We don't know what the catalyst is to kick it off and watch the playback. Um, and so that, for those that are unfamiliar, the, the term stone tape theory, um, that basically comes from a 1972 BBC Christmas ghost story production called The Stone Tape. And that was kind of the, the premise uh, of that. But also the idea goes back to the uh, late 19th century with the Society for Psychical Research where Edmund Gurney and Eleanor Sidgwick uh, proposed the idea that certain buildings and construction materials are capable of storing records of the past. So, I mean, it could be that the, the makers of the stone tape were aware of that research and incorporated that into their story. Uh, that's always possible, but that would be uh, the idea of stone tape theory. So possibly one or the other. But since we're talking about time, and we don't have a lot of time left, how'd that happen? Um, and Sarah's asking, would you consider entities that are trapped in their death state as time slips? Um, depends on what you mean as death state, because there are uh, many psychic mediums who can pick up on a spirit and see and see what you'd call their death face. And in that particular instance, I mean, you have an intelligent entity that's trying to convey to a psychic medium, this is how I died. Um, so in that sense, that would be, um, it wouldn't even necessarily be a haunting, that'd just be spirit energy communicating with a psychic. So I guess it would need a kind of a more detailed type of scenario. Um, and I think that's what it comes down to, because I think we're we're kind of too quick to just say, oh, that's a residual haunt, that's an intelligent haunt. I think there are a variety of different situations that we're dealing with here. It's kind of almost like, you know, the whole shadow person thing. Well, what's a shadow person? Well, there's not just one. We need, there are actually a lot of different varieties and different scenarios that we're talking about here. And I think that happens with a lot of our hauntings. We think we're too easy to call it like a haunting. And it's like, well, there's probably a little bit more going on here. So, but um, one other quick one here before we wrap it up, uh, The Boy in the Mountain. Story came out of Marshall, Alaska in 2008 where a hunter encountered a young boy in the woods who seemingly came out of nowhere. This was actually, it was reported in the paper, a legit story uh, in the Anchorage Daily News. He was, the boy was disoriented. He was confused about, you know, where he was and how he got there. Uh, and basically, where he was standing, uh, you know, in the snow, you know, there weren't any footprints around him. It was totally clean snow, but there he was standing there. How did he get there? So in time, he revealed that he'd been brought inside Pilcher Mountain, where he was questioned by these, quote-unquote, little beans that were known as the Erchinkok. And I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh but that's what the indigenous people of the of the region call them. And inside that mountain, he met a little girl who said she had been abducted 40 years beforehand, but she had not aged at all. Time seemed to like stand still or just operate differently inside this area where these little beans were and where this little girl was. So after spending some time with the little girl, the urchin hawk decided to release the boy, and that's where he appeared in the snow, and the uh, and the hunters found him. So, you have a very um, fairy-like story. You you get stories like this out of Ireland, you know, where we just were this past summer. Uh, stories where you know people are kidnapped, they're taken by you know little ones. 
they're taken to another realm, some other dimension or whatever for a period of time. And it might seem like a long period of time um, in that area. And then they come back and it's been a few minutes or the reverse where they're taken to this other area, uh, this other dimension or whatever seems like 10 minutes or whatever. They come back out and it's been much, much longer, sometimes years. So very, very similar to our fairy lore from other parts of the world. We're finding it there in Alaska with these strange time elements attached to it. So, all right, we are going to have to wrap that up. Really appreciate everybody joining this evening. Um, I had other things to get to. We didn't get to the UFOs. We didn't get to the giants. There's a lot that goes on within Alaska. So again, for those that are tuning in later on, please go ahead, join us here every Wednesday night, 8 o'clock p.m., connecteduniverseportal.com. For those that are members, I, I will be uh, making a post here very shortly for the monthly Q&A questions. I should have done it last week while I was uh, out there in Rhode Island. Got a little crazy with all the traveling, not going to lie. And so, um, so we'll collect those here and uh, get the Q&A video out for you guys. Everybody else uh, listening later, join us, connectuniverseportal.com. Until next time, if time really exists.